Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 41-50. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Exodus, The Book of Redemption and Relationship. A. Shepherd. We will go through the entire book in 24 parts. Part 23 of 24. Exodus chapter 25 verses 17 to 30 in verse 17 the mercy seat is mentioned. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. The descriptive term used by the Spirit cannot fail to arrest the attention of those who have tasted that the Lord is good, since it speaks of God coming out in the exercise of the rites of mercy. It is the display of the righteousness of God in the way of mercy toward those who were utterly ruined by sin. And our state being beyond recovery or remedy, mercy alone can meet our need as founded on the work of redemption. How reassuring the words of the Apostle, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth a mercy seat, through faith in his blood. For the showing forth of his righteousness, in respect of the passing by the sins that has taken place before, through the forbearance of God, for the showing forth of his righteousness in the present time so that he should be just, and justify him that is of the faith of Jesus, Romans chapter 3 verses 24 to 26. As the force of this remarkable statement bursts upon our feeble apprehension as also the greatness and glory of the Saviour and the magnitude of the work he has accomplished. Our hearts rise in responsive praise to him who so, loved us, and sent his Son a propitiation for our sins, 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. This mighty work of redemption has shown God to be righteous in passing by, not bringing into judgment the sins of Old Testament saints. And also God is shown to be righteous at the present time in justifying those whose faith is in Jesus as a Saviour. There is no mention of the shittim wood in the construction of the mercy seat. It was to be, of pure gold. This conveys to us the precious thought that it is God coming out to us according to what he is in himself, according to his own essential fullness but with thoughts of mercy toward his creatures who were in a state of enmity with and estrangement from him. Let us observe also where the mercy seat was placed. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above on the ark, Exodus chapter 25 verse 21. The ark, a precious type of Christ, as already noted, sustains the mercy seat, and in virtue of his having accomplished the work of redemption. The blood of the sin offering having been carried into the holiest of all and sprinkled once upon the mercy seat and seven times before it, Leviticus chapter 16 verses 11 to 14, God speaks with the mediator and through him to his people. And there will I meet with thee, and will speak with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, Exodus chapter 25 verse 22. How perfectly accordant is this with Paul's words to Timothy, for this is good and acceptable before our Saviour God, who desires that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For God is one, and the mediator of God and men one, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony to be rendered in its own times, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3-6. The mercy seat was measured and supported by the Ark of the Testimony. How all this speaks of the attitude and activities of a Saviour God whose disposition of love to guilty men found its perfect and supreme expression in the gift of an only begotten Son. He has not spared his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. How wonderful the testimony being rendered now concerning him who came into the world not to do his own will but the will of him that sent him. And to finish his work. How the thought of the self-renunciation of the Lord Jesus is intensified in the following words, Wherefore coming into the world he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wilt street not. 
but thou hast prepared me a body. Then I said, Lo, I come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do, O God, thy will, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 to 9. How perfect was the lowly grace in which he came, for in the acceptance of that body specially prepared him, he accepted all the limitations which his perfect manhood imposed on him, and voluntarily entered that path of obedience which his manhood entailed in view of accomplishing the will of God, taking his place in the likeness of men, and having been found in figure as a man, humbled himself becoming obedient even unto death, and at the death of the cross, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5-8. In the intrinsic glory and dignity of his own person, he was none other than the one, who is over all, God blessed forever, yet his self-abasement assumed a bondman's form, and as such, he, who knew only what it was to command, learned obedience by the things which he suffered. As another has written, how base to take advantage of his grace to despise his glory. To be so occupied with the humiliation to which he stooped to glorify God the Father and show us both God and man in his own person and ways, and, above all, to accomplish redemption. To be so filled, I may say, with the circumstances of shame into which he went down in love as to forget who he is in himself that for us descended so low. No, he that was perfect man was very God, equally with the Father and the Holy Spirit. All things were made not only by him but for him. How fittingly therefore does the mercy seat, all of pure gold, rest upon the ark of the testimony, made of shittim wood overlaid with pure gold. Observe, too, the peculiar designation of the ark as the ark of the testimony. How precious the testimony this blessed one, the substance of all these shadows, has rendered concerning himself as the object of the Father's good pleasure, and of his purpose, in virtue of the blood-sprinkled mercy seat, both on and before to have sons before him fully conformed to the image of the Son of his love. All like thee, for thy glory like thee, Lord, object supreme of all, by all adored. Moreover, Moses is instructed to, make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them. At the two ends of the mercy seat, Exodus chapter 25 verse 18. From the various references to the cherubim throughout the word of God, it would seem that they are representative of God's power in creation and judicial government as attendance upon that throne, which is characterized by righteousness and holiness, as the psalmist says, righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne, Psalm chapter 97 verse 2. They exercise judicial power in the enforcement of what is morally suitable to all the attributes of God. The seraphim, on the other hand, appear to symbolize celestial beings which have to do with the holiness of God's nature, according to Isaiah chapter 6 where one calls to the other saying, holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The first mention of the cherubim, General 3, relates to a very solemn moment in the history of mankind. There they are seen, as commanded of God, with the flame of the flashing sword guarding the way to the tree of life. Man, as fallen, could not be allowed to partake of the tree of life and so perpetuate his sinful history in this world. But how different the attitude of the cherubim in our chapter, they were to be made, out of the mercy seat and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings over it, covering over with their wings the mercy seat, and their faces opposite to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be turned. How wonderful the design of the Spirit in noting the significant attitude of these guardians of God's throne. It seems to suggest that they were not to look out, as taking account of man's sinful condition but inward and downward on the mercy seat of pure gold, on which had been sprinkled the blood of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. 
and he, Aaron, shall take of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle with his finger upon the front of the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood seven times with his finger, Leviticus chapter 16 verse 14. Because of the infinite and abiding efficacy of the precious blood of Christ as typified in the sin offering. God is a saviour God, with thoughts of forgiveness. Justification, reconciliation and life for men, and not of judgment, giving to men this wonderful ministry of reconciliation, how that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning to them their offences, and putting in us the word of that reconciliation. But why this surpassing grace and favour to men, so utterly undeserved and unasked for by men? Because, him who knew not sin he, God, has made sin for us, that we might become God's righteousness in him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18-21. His precious blood has spoken there before and on the throne. And still, the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, speaks its own sweet message of pardon and peace. Instead of vengeance as did Abel's. What surpassing and eternal glory has been brought to God with regard to the momentous question of sin through the shedding of Christ's precious blood? He was God's unspotted and unblemished lamb, foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world. How great is the value God places upon the blood of Christ by which atonement has been effected. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul, and without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sins. In this present dispensation of grace, God, as a saviour God, is not taking account of men in their sinful condition as objects of judgment but as objects of mercy with a view to the forgiveness of their sins and the cancellation of the guilt. On their acceptance of God's testimony concerning the atoning value of that precious blood and of their need of its abiding efficacy. In taking account of the infinite value of the blood of Christ, God's disposition toward men is one of unqualified grace. Through the work of redemption God has been glorified as a saviour God and his righteousness displayed in the exercise of his rights of mercy toward men. How precious Christ ought to be to those who stand accepted before God in all the unchanging efficacy of the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he, the propitiation for our sins. But not for ours alone, but also for the whole world, 1 John chapter 2 verses 1-2. We have therefore, boldness for entering into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way which he has dedicated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19-20. What a wondrous change for blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat has wrought, God is against sin, but for the sinner, and all his attributes, as typified in the cherubim, are acting in perfect harmony to the achievement of all his purposes in grace to men, for in the work of redemption, mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. In Exodus chapter 25 verses 23 to 30 we have another vessel brought before us, the table of showbread. Supposing the tabernacle to have been erected, this vessel was placed, along with the candlestick of pure gold and the gold altar of incense, though the latter is not mentioned in our chapter, in the holy place. While the ark with the mercy seat and the cherubim which we have already considered solely occupied the holy of holies, God's immediate dwelling place. The number of loaves to be placed on the table is not mentioned in this chapter. Since it would seem the purpose of the Spirit is to keep Christ prominently before us as variously typified in these different vessels. The table of showbread speaks of Christ as the one who alone can sustain before God that which is for his pleasure. In accordance with and flowing from the truth of what is presented to us in the ark and the mercy seat. 
this precious thought is sustained as we consider that the composition of the table was similar to the ark, thereby bringing Christ before us in his divine and human natures, combined in one person. It is this which makes these types such an absorbing theme where Christ is everywhere presented as to the beauty and excellency of his person, or to some of his glories and perfections. In order to complete the typical teaching connected with the table of showbread, we must refer to Leviticus chapter 24 verses 5 to 9, where we are instructed as to the composition of the loaves or cakes and the manner in which they were placed upon the table. In considering the ingredients used, one is conscious of a notable omission, purposely designed of the Spirit, since this stands out in marked contrast to the two wave loaves mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 17, which were baked with leaven. The reason is that the two wave loaves are figurative of the church or assembly, and therefore leaven, which is invariably a figure of evil, is specifically mentioned, whereas the fine flour, which was the principal ingredient in the making of the twelve loaves, brings before us Christ, who was the true meat offering, the holy, harmless, undefiled one, unique in his flawless, spotless purity as a man, incomparable to others as being without sin. The fine flour was the finest part of wheat flour, Exodus chapter 29 verse 2, specially chosen by the Spirit as being descriptive of the one in whom there was the perfect blending of every element that constituted the moral glory of Jesus as a man. There was no disproportionate element in him, all was perfectly even in character and expression. The fine flour has been characterized by another in these words, the meat offering of God, taken from the fruit of the earth, was of the finest wheat, that which was pure. Separate and lovely in human nature was in Jesus under all its sorrows, but in all its excellence, and excellent in its sorrows. There was no unevenness in Jesus, no predominant quality to produce the effect of giving him a distinctive character. The twelve loaves, set in two rows with pure frankincense put upon each row, speak of Israel in its twelve tribal capacity, set before God in all the precious fragrance of Christ and maintained there throughout all the dark night of their sore chastening at the hand of God. Because of their unfaithfulness and unbelief, in accordance with these instructions, every Sabbath day he, Aaron, shall arrange it before Jehovah continually, on the part of the children of Israel. It is an everlasting covenant. Thus do we see on this early page of the Word of God an allusion to the divine principle declared in unequivocal language by the Apostle in Romans chapter 11 verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are not subject to repentance. Or, never to be regretted. Other scriptures can be adduced in confirmation of God's unchanging purpose to bless his earthly people in accordance with the terms of the covenant he had made with Abraham. In Joshua IV, despite the fact that two and a half tribes desired to remain on this side of the Jordan toward the sun rising, we are told that when the whole nation had completely gone over the Jordan, Jehovah instructs Joshua to take twelve men, one out of every tribe, who were to take twelve stones from the river Jordan where the priest's feet had stood firm, and, carry him over with you, and lay him down in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua himself, set up twelve stones, in the midst of the Jordan, and they are there to this day. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 verse 6 and 7, declares before Agrippa, and now I stand to be judged because of the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers to which our whole twelve tribes serving incessantly day and night hope to arrive. So Paul can say in words which challenge all contradiction, I say then, has God cast away his people? Far be the thought, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, Romans chapter 11 verse 1 and 2. 
God, in the exercise of his sovereignty, declares the unchangeableness of his purpose and pre-serves it from any semblance of afterthought. In the showbread, therefore, we see typified the nourishment God would provide for his earthly people in Christ, and them, as associated with him, maintained in their administrative perfection in their supremacy over the other nations. To whom would flow the rich bounty of God through their instrumentality. Thus saith Jehovah of hosts, in those days shall ten men take hold, out of all languages of the nations, shall even take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you, Zechariah chapter 8 verse 23. While the twelve loaves unmistakably refer to Israel, it is significant that the nation did not eat of the showbread, it was the food of the priests. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy unto him of Jehovah's offering by fire, it is an everlasting statute, Leviticus chapter 24 verse 9. In this do we not have indicated the relevance of its application to every true believer in Christ of this present dispensation. Those belonging to Christ are all priests as typified in the expression, Aaron's and his sons. An intermediary priestly class, constituted such by human ordination, and as it exists in the religious systems of the world today, finds no sanction or support in the word of God. Not only so, but Hebrews chapter 10 verses 28 to 29 is a very solemn and fearful warning given by the Spirit through the Apostle, of the fatal consequences of reverting to the old order of worship. As though it were to be the pattern of our worship, instead of being in every way the contrast to it. To return, therefore, to the order of worship under the law is to reject the heavenly order for that which was but a pattern of the heavenly, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23. As has been said, this marks the apostasy of worship, the religious profession around us has appointed a priesthood presumably in a place of nearness to God and its people at a distance. And is this not to trample underfoot the Son of God? As though, after all he has suffered in accomplishing the will of God, his people were at as great a distance as ever and as though we needed the intervention of others in our approach to God. Beside the all-efficacious ministrations of him who is minister of the holy places and of the true tabernacle which the Lord has pitched, and not man, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 2. To return to the old form, therefore, is characterized by the apostle as esteeming, the blood of the covenant whereby he has been sanctified common. Having no holy character as that which would still keep us without instead of that which is our righteous and abiding title to enter into the holiest of all. It is also to insult the Spirit of Grace, who witnesses to us of the reality of this heavenly order of priesthood and indwells every true believer in Christ, and thus gives competency to worship God in accordance with his own nature. God is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John chapter 4 verse 24. To the priests, therefore, the showbread belongs, and as we have seen repeatedly, the priests represent the people of God who are all priests, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. The showbread is also spoken of as the presence bread, and, as the food of the priests, speaks of Christ as the food of his people, no longer on earth, but as now glorified, and as minister of the heavenly sanctuary. We enjoy communion with him there as the food of our souls. We have seen that the table upon which the twelve loaves are set speaks of Christ, as does the ark, it is thus communion is maintained and in which we are identified with him. For his place determines our place before God. How precious to enjoy this sweet communion with Jesus in the holy places, fragrant with his own perfections and excellencies, as typified in the frankincense. 
Tis Jesus fills that holy place where glory dwells, and thy deep love in its own fullness, known through grace, rests where he lives in heaven above.